Shall we pray? Father, open our ears that we would hear. Open our minds that we would receive. Open our souls that we would feed upon your word. Word that nourishes like the finest bread. Illuminate these words that our spirits would receive your understanding, we pray in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen and good morning and please be seated. It's a special treat for me being the, the 8 o'clock guy. You, you have the far better looking deacon. Uh, at your service, but I, I get to see people that I don't, wouldn't otherwise see on Sunday, so it's good, good to see all of you. Our thoughts this morning are drawn from our New Testament reading, that from the second chapter of the Epistle of St. James. Now this is what they refer to as a Catholic or a general epistle that was written to the church at large. Now, unlike most of, of Paul's writings and, and much of St. John's writings that were written to a target audience or a target individual, this was an epistle that was written to be read to the entire church at large, irrespective of where it was. This epistle is, epistle is also accepted, widely accepted to be the oldest of New Testament writings, penned approximately 30 years after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Now, some, uh, some skeptics would say, well, you know, that was 30 years. It, stuff gets lost in, in translation. I would wager that on your car radio, whether it's terrestrial or satellite, you have some presets on there of music from 70s on 7 or maybe 80s on 8. That music is just as, as fresh as when Casey Kasem was spinning it on the top 40. Uh, so under, understand that these words, while we are separated from two millennia, uh, these words were as fresh to the hearers as the Challenger disaster is to us. Uh, now, there's, there's, there's debate on the actual identity of who the author is because there's multiple Jameses mentioned in, in the New Testament. Now, two likely candidates to be the author is either James, the son of Alphaeus, or James, the stepbrother of, of Jesus, who is referred to in, in history as, as James the Just, who was also the de facto leader of the church in Jerusalem and the one who presided over the Jerusalem council that we read about in Acts 15. But regardless of who the author is, the words of this epistle, this letter, are direct, pithy, to the point, and echo the words of Jesus as he taught during his earthly minister ministry. Now today's chapter in chapter two, reading from chapter two, uh, while speaking, it, it spoke of a, num a number of things. It spoke of, of the perils of playing favorite, favoritism, but it also speaks on the interdependency between faith and works. And that's what our focus of, of our thoughts this morning are, are going to be. And misunderstanding of this interdependency has been a source of confusion or consternation for many believers over the year. Uh, none the least, uh, the reformer Martin Luther, 
who somehow saw the writing of James to fly in the face of, of the writings of Paul to the point that I, I can hear him say this in, in, a, in a rich German baritone voice that probably sounded a little like Sergeant Schultz, where he declared this epistle to be ein Brief aus Stuhl, an epistle of straw. But, you know, it, he, he called the canonicity of this in, into 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 belief in, into question because like he said he thought it contradicted the idea of grace through faith which is a pillar of of new testament thinking saint james opens with a, a rhetorical argument as as he begins this in, in verses 14 through 17 where he says what good is it my brothers if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily, in daily food, and one of you says, says to them, go in peace and be filled, without giving them the, the things they, that are needed for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. James asks, asks, is a faith bereft of worth truly a saving faith? Will a faith without demonstrable works allow you to stand before the Almighty as justified? Now, in our, our own day, the waters of this discussion have been muddled and muddied through confusion brought about by misunderstandings, and misapplication of scripture. So in order to start from a solid, a solid standing point on solid ground, we need to state the presupposition that we are saved solely by God's grace and not through our own good works or personal merit as, as described by St. Paul in Ephesians 2 where he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not, an, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now, over time, we have found that there are those who have misapplied this axiomatic truth, using it as a sledgehammer to delegitimize delegit works altogether. In the end, the outworking of one's redemption is blunted. And our relationship with the Almighty is reduced to a passive activity, much like a spectator sport. Now, spectator sports, are, there's nothing necessarily wrong with spectator sports. Uh, I like watching the Eagles lose on Sunday. Uh, and I, in, in some ways, I would much rather watch it than get plowed by a 300-pound line, linebacker. But... The Lord, in, in the Lord's economy, Christianity was never meant to be a spectator sport. It was meant to be living and lively and one that was lived out in front of the entire, entire world. So while you probably, now while you probably didn't know this word, order expression, when we, but when we first went to school, we began to learn about interdependencies. Uh, and when, as we studied grammar, we learned that to be a proper sentence, that sentence had to contain both a subject 
and a predicate. Otherwise, it's, it's just the phrase and, and little, little more. Now, in, in similar fashion, our faith requires both belief and action. If, it is, if it's going to be a live, living, living or lively faith, according to St. James, the, this faith unaccompanied by an outworking of action is not only dysfunctional, it's not only broke, it is, as James said in so many words, dead. But St. Paul spoke of this as well. So this is no contradiction, as he, tell, as he reminded us in Ephesians 2 and 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. James continues in his exhortation, and he expounds on it, and, and in so doing so, he winds up leveling a pretty grave indictment where he says, beginning in verse 18, but some will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now you believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James speaks to the worthlessness of a said faith without demonstrable works at this point. He reminds the hearer that, that the works in, in the lives of the followers are evidentiary of a possessed faith. Uh, let's put it in some application. Uh, let's look at it the other way. An active prayer life in a believer demonstrates one faith in the truth that not only does God call us to prayer... But God actively hears and answers those prayers. The same can be said about acts of mercy, acts of stewardship. And the others demonstrate that the saint's belief in the commands and promises of the, of the one who redeemed us. Finally, James points out to the fact that a faith without action really in truth is little more than easy believism, which is non-salvific as the belief that was held by the fallen hosts of hell, who fully believe in the commands of God and tremble over them. It's something we, could, we, we must be careful not to convolute disbelief with disobedience. Yes, the, the hosts of hell are the absolute paragon of, of disobedience. Those who got to witness light and approachable and, and rebelled against us. Uh, to, to quote the colloquial, they're pretty much getting what they are, what's coming to them. But that said, they know that every word that, that the Almighty God speaks is the absolute truth, and St. James reminds us they tremble over it. He continues on, and James now takes the opportunity to make a solid connection and application to the hearer. And in doing so, uses two monumental fi fi figures in the narrative of the faith, those being Abraham and Rahab, a patriarch and a prostitute. He goes on in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
you see that faith was active all along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not, Ra was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works which he received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so is faith apart from, the, from works dead. Now as, as I was preparing for this, this message this week, uh, there, there was a little phrase that was captured in verse 25 where it talks about Rahab sending the spies out by another way. Uh, it may just seem some words, but how many times have we seen that expression? You know, every year we tell the story around Epiphany about the, the Magi who came from from the, the Near East, traveled over land to bring gifts to the, the boy king, Jesus. Knowing that Herod, uh, his word was absolute. Knowing that Herod could, could make those magi disappear and never be seen again. God, through his angel, directed those, those magi to return another way. And when you consider it, our natural estate, our natural uh, position is we are born in sin and would continue to sin. And we would be rightly deserving the condemnation and death that we would receive when we stand before the Lord. Not only death temporal, but death eternal. But through Jesus Christ, through that propitiatory, sac propitiatory sacrifice, God sent us home another way and that's through Jesus and through his sacrifice and let us never forget that so we, we see what happens Abraham our father in faith and Rahab the prostitute of Jericho two individuals who were separated by ten generations were separated by geography and cultures uh, both of these two were living examples of, of those with faith demonstrated by works of righteousness. Both were cited here not only by St. James, but later the writer to the letter of Hebrews would include these two in, in, his, in his hall of fame, if you'll have it, of the heroes of the faith. Let's for a moment, though, let's peek, peel back the millennia. Let's remove our stained glass glasses and look at the two of these uh, individuals at ground level. You know, we, we have a, it's very easy for us to lionize through hagiography, to take these heroes of faith and make them something they weren't. But they were men and women like us, with like passions, with like hopes, like fears, but individuals that God moved in extraordinary means through their lives. So let's consider them at ground level. Genesis 11, we're introduced to Abraham while he was still known as Abram, the son of Terah, 
We learn early that this Chaldean resident of Ur was married to Sarai, a woman suffering from infertility. And with this, Abraham would have little to no hope of seeing his generational lines continue. Now, in our day, that, that's a sad tragedy when, when couples are not able to have children and, and to continue on to have the joys of, of children and ultimately the joys of grandchildren. And for those of you who have yet to experience the joy of grandchildren, I, I can tell you, at some point you're going to ask yourself, well, if I knew grandkids were this cool, I'd have skipped right over the kids and gone to the grandchildren. But that's one thing in the day we live. Now, in, in the day, in the times of Abram, uh, in that Sumerian and Chalde Chaldean culture, not having, not having offspring, not having progeny, uh, meant financial ruin. Because when a man like Abraham, when he would have passed, uh, and he, let's, let's, let's not be mistaken, Abraham was a man of, of great means uh, for his day. He definitely, if he were around today, by comparison, he would have been a one percenter for sure. But yet, all his wealth, all his holdings with, without a son would go somewhere else, somebody else, and who knows what, what would happen to that. Uh, but we see, with, with, and without mincing words, likewise, Rahab was a prostitute. And while not one who was under Levitical law, she was still someone who lived on, on the fringes of her world living beyond the, the, the borders of polite society, if you'll have it. Uh, and both of these would be pulled to a moment of crisis. Genesis 21 records how the Almighty intervened, reigniting Sarai, now Sarah's reproductive cycle, and she gave birth to Isaac. I love the meaning of the name Isaac. It means laughter. How so? Well, imagine you are a, even if you weren't barren, but you were a woman well beyond the years of, of, of reproductive years uh, into uh, your second or third decade beyond menopause. And a stranger comes up and says, hey, next week, next year, you're going to have a son. She bursted into the biggest belly laugh that she, she like, yeah. I think the, the original words in the original Sumerian would have been like, what? Seriously? But yet it happened. And the, the, she was told, you know, you're going to name him Isaac, which means laughter, because when you heard the news, you thought it was hilarious, and you burst it out. But that hilarity soon became joy as, as these aged parents were enjoying the, the presence of a son uh, in, in the person of Isaac. But yet we see that a short time later, Abraham receives devastating, devastating command from on high. The Almighty was now demanding that this miracle child of promise be given as a burnt offering before the Lord. Leaping centuries forward, uh, considering Rahab, the, prost the prostitute Rahab learns that an army of over two million 
is bearing down on her city, Jericho, which archaeology and history tells us that that is the oldest city on the planet. Uh, it was likely founded shortly after, after the, the deluge of the flood. Uh, and here comes an army of two million. Now, we know that there were more, well more than two million Israelites. When we hear that figure, two million, that's just talking men of fighting age. They're coming down. What does this look like in our world? It wasn't that long ago that ISIS was the scourge of the Middle East. And to be a Yazidi, and if you could just imagine Rahab as a, as a young Yazidi woman, knowing that there is an army coming uh, under marching orders of no quarter and a black flag, and they are not going to take prisoners. It's, it would not go well for her. But these two act working in faith. Abraham treks towards Mount Moriah with his son and materials for a sacrifice. I think we could assume that Isaac was likely familiar with what was unfolding, perhaps joining his, his father many times, offering a sacrifice before the Lord. Uh, but the son noticed something odd. Well, they're carrying the kindling, the wood, carrying the flint uh, to spark the fire, carrying the knife uh, for the offering. Something suspiciously is missing, and, it, and Isaac asks his father, Hey, Dad, where, what, are we, what are we offering for a sacrifice? To which... Abraham replies directly and confidently, saying, God will provide the sacrifice. And leaping back forward towards, towards Rahab, we see that two men, two men were dispatched by Joshua on, on a recon mission, were already on the king's radar. Uh, by the time these, these two spies encountered Rahab, those in authority in Jericho were well aware of it and had issued a bolo or be on the lookout for uh, the two spies. And not only that, but the king was well aware of the fact that these two spies had an already had an encounter with Rahab and demanded her to surrender the men. Now, Rahab has found herself truly between a rock and a hard place. Because as he mentioned with, with Herod, the kid, this unnamed king of Jericho, who we, we don't know whose name, but we know he was an absolute monarch. His words were life and death. And if Rahab did not deliver, uh, her life could become nasty, brutish, and extremely short. Uh, in, in, the word of, of, in the words of Hobbes. Yet we, we see these, these two apt examples of ones whose faith were demonstrated through works. Abraham, Abraham believed the Almighty would reveal himself as Jehovah Jireh, the God who would provide. Yet in obedience, he still prepared the burnt offer of sacrifice. Now many have tried to Monday morning quarterback uh, the, this story 
and try to eisegetically read in meaning to this that just is little more than earnest conjecture at, at, at its very best. Because we do, Scripture gives us what we need to know about this, this story. Abraham, and that is Abraham's belief that the provider was going to provide the sacrifice. You know, it's, it's like our lives. God is providing for us every day. Uh, and as I've shared with Father Scott, talking about things, I, I will say to Father Scott, Scott, I know this is going to happen, but I don't know what it's going to look like. And that's where Abraham was. He knew beyond a doubt that God was going to provide for him. He had no idea what it was going to look like, but he knew that the provision was going to be there. Uh, same way, uh, Rahab, believing that the army of Yahweh would show mercy to her family, placed a conspicuous red cord in her window. Now, often we'll, we'll, we'll see this described as a thread, but when you look at this in, in the Hebrew, you're basically talking a length of rope. Uh, because a gossamer th red thread is not going to be visible in a pitched battle. It has to be something that, well, the swords are clanking and the shields are slamming that somebody has to look up and say, hey, don't destroy that house. Uh, but the flip side of that, if it was going to be conspicuous to advancing Israelite soldiers... It was going to be conspicuous to the people on the ground and the, the, the Gladys Kravitzes of the world that are looking out their windows saying, what's that? Abner! Uh, and it could bring her into question and, and put her into harm's way, yet she did it none, nonetheless. Uh, and she could have possibly exposed, been exposed to the king's wrath. But to consider all this, that these two, along with other heroes of faith, were curled by the writer of Hebrews, possessed lively and demonstrable faith. Abraham is forever remembered as both friend of God and our father in faith. He's the only one scripture calls a friend of God. It's quite an honor. Rahab was blessed to have been grafted into the people of promise a grandmother to King David and an earthly ancestor to the Messiah when, when he would be born. So what might a takeaway be in the midst of all this today? We could, like Luther, stumble over this letter, declare it ein brief Ausdruck, an epistle of straw, or prayerful meditation we could consider how the outward manifestations of an inwardly held faith serve to validate that faith before God and, and the world. Uh, it's like my dad would, would tell me uh, when I really didn't feel like uh, raking leaves off the backyard because next Saturday the yard would have been full of leaves. So I'd go out there and do it. I said, yeah, Dad, the leaves are, le yard's done. He would say, don't tell me, show me. And the outworking of our faith 
doesn't just tell the world who we are. It doesn't just tell the world who God is, but it shows who God is to that world, and it serves to validate our faith. And finally, there is no contradiction between St. James and St. Paul. We have been saved by grace through faith for these very works. And it would be my exhortation and prayer that these works would be found in your life this week. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.